Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Quote, to defend this nation, we need a healthy and ready force. Close quote. That's the rationale for Secretary of Defense Lloyd Abrams' August 24th memo ordering mandatory COVID vaccines for all members of the armed forces on active duty and in the reserves. That's more than 800,000 people. For my guest today, this memo is history repeating itself and not in a healthy way. Frank Spinner is a retired Air Force defense lawyer who while in the military served in high level positions, including Chief Circuit Defense Counsel and Chief Appellate Defense Counsel. Since retiring, he has continued defending members of the military in his own law practice, handling a number of high profile cases that were covered by major mainstream outlets like Oprah, Larry King Live, and 60 Minutes. So how is history repeating itself for Spinner? 20 years ago, he represented the first military doctor to refuse to obey a similar Defense Department memo ordering all serving members of the armed forces to take the anthrax vaccine. Now he's representing a serving member of the military refusing to take the COVID vaccine. Welcome, Mr. Spinner. Glad to be here. So as Faulkner famously said, the past is prologue. So I'd like to start with your anthrax case. That was with uh, Captain John Buck. So talk about who he was, what his circumstances were, and why he refused the anthrax vaccine. Well, Dr. Buck uh, was an Air Force doctor on active duty. He was going to be deployed. um, And at that time, the anthrax vaccine um, had... um, was being administered to military members who were being deployed to combat locations. Um, He uh, thoroughly looked at the vaccine. He looked at the science behind the vaccine. He looked at the ethical issues related to um, giving people the vaccine. And of course, he became one who was going to receive the vaccine. And so after looking at the science behind it, uh, looking at his responsibilities ethically as a doctor, Uh, he decided that he could not in good conscience uh, take the vaccine. And when he was ordered to take the vaccine, he looked at every alternative. He said, I'm willing to go serve in the combat area without the vaccine. I'm willing to waive um, my uh, life insurance policy, the servicemen's group's life insurance policy. I'm willing to perform my duties. I'm just not willing to take the vaccine because I don't, it's experimental is what he basically said. And so, um, so he followed uh, his conscience and he refused, the, he disobeyed the order. Uh, we tried to resolve it without uh, court-martial, but uh, ultimately they, were court-martial- they court-martialed him, the Air Force. He was convicted. He received what would be considered a relatively light punishment. And uh, what was not commonly reported in the press, I don't believe at the time, uh, is that he, um, they never ordered him to take that, the vaccine again. He was not discharged. He did not get a a punitive discharge. He said, I'm still not going to take the vaccine, but they never ordered him to do it again. And so he continued to serve until he voluntarily left the service uh, and uh, and never had the anthrax vaccine. So he was he was going to go over and serve on on, Desert Storm, correct? correct. And and, um, so I understand that. What was your defense for him? What? Well, well, the the uh, the basic defense was a, a scientific defense. In other words, uh, we were trying to demonstrate or prove that 
uh, it was an unlawful order. It was an unconstitutional order, and he should not have to comply with it because uh, the it was an experimental vaccine, and he should not be required to um, take it. Now, I've read reports where it said they said that you submitted 50 documents in support of your claim about the the vaccine being unsafe, including one where you said that the army itself admitted in documentation that this vaccine was unsafe. Do you recall? Do you recall that? Well, I mean, that is that's testing my memory. It is 20 years ago. Um, okay. I, in fact, I started checking all my computer files to see what I still had from that case. And I, I think most of it's pr uh, in print in a box buried in the storage unit. So so I haven't been able to go back and look at that specifically. Well, the quote from you in this article was in those documents, you find what the real army position was on the anthrax vaccine. Well, we think that those documents show that the anthrax vaccine is not as safe as the DOD has said it is. That's what you said. And then you had Merrill Nass, Dr. Merrill Nass, who uh, is an expert on the anthrax vaccine. Could you uh, talk about what she said or do you remember what she had said on the stand? I, I don't remember what she said on the stand. And, and, and just so you know, um, in terms of the transcript, I don't know if they prepared a transcript or not. The kind of punishment he received, they would not have prepared one. Of course, this was a very high profile case. And so one may have been prepared, but I haven't looked at that in a long time. Well, what I think is what I think she was saying that this was an experimental vaccine that, you know, they'd only tried it on monkeys. They'd oh, only there uh, had been no human, correct. There had been no human tests. That's right. And there had been no human tests. OK. And what struck me, though, was that the judge basically ignored that context and just said he has you know, he's going to be court martialed because he ignored a standing order. Well, yeah, well right. And I believe the judge was wrong. I'll, I'll go to my grave. Believing the well, based on what do you say that the judge was wrong? Well, I think because um, and I have to be I, in a way I want to be respectful of the military judges. I still uh, I, I just want you to be truthful and direct, you know, whatever. Let the chips fall where they may, because, you know, this is very serious stuff. People people it's really suffered as a yes. result of that vaccine. It's really uh, serious, and I believe that uh, I, I there's a term I've used with when I talk to my clients about military judges. Are they um, intellectually honest? Right. And, and, and I think there was a lack of uh, intellectual honesty in this case. Well, uh, institutional wait. bias. Well, let's forget the institutional bias. What does the law say? about experimental vaccines. Now, I know back then you had the Ferris, Ferris doctrine, right? That basically said, listen, if, if you get hurt on the job, you know, you can't, if you're a military person, you get hurt on the job, that's too bad for you. You signed up to, you know, put yourself in the line of fire and so on and so forth. But, um, and I assume that that was part of what they were evoking in, or, resting their decision on besides 
oh yes, he did not uh, he did not obey an order, or was it simply he didn't obey an order? Well, that's what the judge said, but I disagree. And here's here's what that's you, um, shocking isn't that isn't that isn't that malpractice on his part? Well, I mean, we could debate that all day long. Okay. Um, but there's a reason they have appellate courts. Another thing I tell clients, when, when you look at you have a trial court, you have an appellate court, and then you have a Supreme Court. Well, well why do you have all those appellate courts? Because judges make wrong decisions. Mid-level appellate courts make wrong decisions. Supreme Courts end up making 5-4 decisions. So you have to realize that while the law may at a certain level appear to be black and white, it's not black and white. And there's there's room within those gray areas for judges and uh, honorable men and women jurists to disagree. Um, I think he got this wrong. And I think I think what scared him was the idea that if he held that the law that that this was an unconstitutional order that was going to impact the entire anthrax operation in the military and he didn't want to be the one blowing that whistle he didn't want to take that responsibility you know it's funny i always say this like when the boat of greatness comes to your door you know you forever change your life and those of many many others if you don't step on and step up you know and that's that judge is one of those people who the boat of greatness came by and he just and and now of course we're in a similar situation now but i want to go back to that anthrax vaccine because it's so interesting to me that bruce ivins because what happened basically i think the background um i've done some research on this is that they had the anthrax vaccine but you had to take six six doses before you could go you know, mm-hmm. off to any place that has it. And of course, let's not forget the reason why Saddam Hussein had anthrax was because we gave it to him. OK, mm-hmm. let's. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just makes you crazy even thinking about all this. Well, think about this. I mean, the Chinese gave us uh, COVID-19. I mean, well, uh, we, we, I know that's another issue. All well, well, my point is, well, no, that's a little different because because. Well, it's not because we sent the gain of function research over there. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, the parallels are, are horrifying. Honestly, they're just horrifying. But OK, so we sent anthrax over to to him and then we decide we're going to attack him. So now we have to give everybody the anthrax vaccine and the anthrax vaccine normally is six doses and it takes a few months to take those doses. Well, they wanted to get to war. They wanted to get to war. They had to like somehow smush those six, six doses into two. And they bring in who? Bruce Ivins, of all people. Bruce Ivins being the guy who was uh, eventually fingered by the FBI on the flimsiest of evidence to uh, as, as the anthrax attack guy <laughs> for 9-11, which, again, the, it's so absurd. And I just thought to myself, I wonder if Bruce Ivins would have been a really good witness for the defense for you at the time of uh, that you were representing Buck, because he would have known if there were problems with that. And there were 
reports of adverse, terrible adverse reactions to the anthrax vaccine, correct? Correct, there were. And then after everybody was vaccinated, again, how many people do you estimate had problems with the anthrax vaccine, suffered adverse effects? I, I mean, I, I didn't follow um, like a lot of defense lawyers, you, you, you do a trial, you do a case, and then you move on to the next case. I know this in terms of Dr. Buck himself, um, he was respected within the medical community for taking that stand. Uh, no actions were taken against him with respect to his license or otherwise. And, uh, and, and even his own, I think the hospital commander or whoever it was that he worked for, uh, testified that he knew that Dr. Buck was taking this stand as a matter of conscience. But, but in terms of ultimately the impact of the anthrax uh, vaccination, the adverse effects, I didn't continue to follow that. I just moved on to other cases. Well, it's, it's very interesting to me because um, my nephew is French. I married a Frenchman. So my nephew is French and he was an officer in the, uh, in the French army during Desert Storm. And those, none of those guys took the anthrax vaccine. None. None of them went home and got sick and had weird illnesses and so on and so forth. So if you wanted to compare two groups of, of uh, soldiers <laughs> who went to the same place and came back, a lot of people over here in the United States, a lot of American troops had problems. The French had nothing. And that's what really struck me because, you know, I, I, I didn't realize that. And the French were like, they couldn't believe it, you know, that these well, vaccines. I, I think that relates specifically to where we are now because um, how, I mean, we're thankful that the uh, vaccines were developed in such a short period of time and they appear to be as successful as they have been. But we don't know the long-term effects. And I think for a lot of the people I've been talking to about should I take the vaccine or not, it, it's that unknown. And, and we're seeing news articles all the time about the Israelis, what's happening in India, Look, what's happening in Sweden. Uh, and we just, there's so much that is unknown. Frank, that Frank. Science, we don't know what the science is going, where it's you, going. You have, uh, here. I've been interviewing me. I like to interview firsthand sources. Okay. I like to interview the people who live where the rubber meets the road. So I have been interviewing from around the world, physicians treating COVID patients. And let me tell you, none of them are proponents of this, these vaccines. None of them. They're proponents of this early treatment protocol. They say the adverse events that have occurred with these vaccines are off the charts and they still don't know what's going to happen down the line. So you are now representing somebody who is uh, refusing to take the COVID vaccine, correct? Correct. So what's, can you talk about the disposition of the case? Can you talk about? Uh, no, it just, I just was retained last week. Okay. Um, we're still looking at where it's going to go. Um, and, and at this point, of course, the, the Department, the Secretary of Defense just issued uh, the, his order last week. It's now being implemented uh, by the various services. And in fact, 
the uh, commandant of cadets at the Air Force Academy just issued the order, ordered cadets to go to the, um, to get their vaccines today. And so uh, just before we started this conversation, um, I was called by someone who was interested in that. There were protests at the front gate of the Air Force Academy today over this order. And so, um, so oftentimes when you defend a military member who refuses an order such as taking a vaccine, it takes a while for that to play out. They don't just, the, the Air Force, the military, the Army, West Point, they're not gonna run right into a courtroom right away. So I am, um, I'm still gathering information on the science. I've received a number of briefs that have been filed in federal court and appellate courts. And I'm preparing the arguments this week that we will present on behalf of my client as to why on multiple levels, uh, these orders are illegal or premature. Well, this is, this is a, to me, um, <laughs> It's, it's deja vu all over again. When you have a situation in the past, you had anthrax being sent over by the United States to a country, and then they send the troops over, giving them these vaccines that they were experimental, were they not? I mean, were they FDA approved? Were they EUA approved, experimental use approved? What, were the, what was the level of approval back then? Well, I, um, as an aside, um, one thing that I don't know that was commonly reported in the Dr. Buck case, uh, if you recall, H. Ross Perot um, had run yeah. a presidential campaign yep. back in the time frame. He called me up. Oh. He said, yeah, he said, Frank, I want to pay uh, for Dr. Buck's legal fees. And if he gets any fine or punishment, I want to pay that, too. Now, to Dr. Buck's credit, he says, no, this was my decision. I will suffer the consequences of that decision. But uh, Mr. Perot uh, believed that there were politics and uh, other issues behind the anthrax vaccine, uh, corporate interests, political interests that uh, were tied together that were behind that. And uh, there was, you know, follow, it's the old follow the money routine. And I think there's some follow the money routine going on here now. Oh, yeah. I mean, here we have um, <clears throat> in 1998, when the Pentagon mandated all active duty and reserve troops to receive the shots, that same year, Bioport Corporation, which produced the vaccines, uh, they bought a plant in Michigan and the newly formed company was facilitated by the late Admiral William Crow, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Presidents Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And then he was friendly with this Fouad al-Hibri, Lebanese-German businessman who became a naturalized American while bidding for the vaccine production facility. So, yes, I mean, people, uh, you know, are top leaders making money off of uh, pharmaceuticals. I mean, Donald Rumsfeld, he's gone now, but, you know, he had major interests in Gilead. Uh, so uh, here's my question to you, too, as okay. as as a defense lawyer, just a defense lawyer. OK, and a guy who understands the military. Is there no accountability to be had for like the fallout from these vaccines, the anthrax vaccines? 
No. The, the short answer, you're not going to like it, is no. Um, and, and I think there are some parallels right now with what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, our our four-star generals, leaders in the Pentagon, who have made the decision to give up Bagram Air Base uh, without um, resigning or, or challenging the president. Um, I mean, it's the same DOD secretary who, who is a retired general who issued this order on the vaccination. I think that too many of our generals have become politicized and they're more interested in holding their positions than doing the right thing. I, yeah, I'm but there's that, no accountability machine for these people. No, you can't. I mean. Uh, accountability is at is the elected office. In other no, words, it is not. I don't understand. Here's what I don't understand. Here's okay. what I don't understand. I don't understand why accountability has to rest on some politician's power base or what he wants. I think accountability should be the law says, you know, you can't you can't vaccinate people with these with vaccines that are going to create terrible adverse events and that are going to cripple people. Now you have 800,000, almost a million of our serving men and women who are going to be vaccinated with these COVID vaccines. Okay. That is some serious business. Who is going to be held accountable when all hell breaks loose on that? Well, think of this another way, though. What, what we have is a situation where are the pharmaceutical companies being held accountable for what they're making? I mean, they're being protected. Exactly. By who? The politicians. So why, why, why can the laws not forget the, the politicians? It's just like when when uh, Bush, when uh, what's his name? Uh, he passed those laws calling torture enhanced interrogation. Right. So basically, you make illegal laws. They're illegal. Why? Because you're, you know, torture is against national and international law. And you are, have just made a law that is illegal because it allows for torture because, oh, you call it enhanced interrogation. Same thing with these vaccines. It, it is the same. And in fact, that was one of the points I wanted to make today is that um, multiple clients, potential clients who've contacted me about this have basically said, I have been told it's an order and in the military you follow orders. Well, when I was a professor of law at the Air Force Academy, I taught law of armed conflict. And I said, no, not every order is unconstitutional. If you order someone to bomb civilians, then that's- Not that's every correct. order is constitutional is what you mean. That's correct. Yeah, right. not every order is constitutional. And so you have to know when you can disobey an order. But, but the problem is, if you're a, a midshipman at the Naval Academy, if you're a cadet at West Point or a cadet at the Air Force Academy, they are so ingrained with this idea that you have to follow an order. Now, it's one thing in combat. I, I taught Air Force Academy cadets. I said, when you're flying a combat mission and you're going down to bomb a target, if you see a, a Red Cross or a Crescent that's consistent with the Red Cross on a building, you cannot bomb that because that's protected under the law of armed conflict. You have to make a decision in a split second, I have to pull off. I don't care what they told me back in the intelligence and in the 
chain of command, I cannot bomb that target. We're not in that environment. You can now take your time, do your own research and study, talk to your own doctor. Now, unfortunately, you, you know, if you work in the military, your doctor's a military doctor. So maybe you need to go talk to a civilian doctor who's not influenced by the military. But the fact of the matter remains, this should be a decision between a patient and a doctor. And it should be based on your own research and study of the science. You have time to make this decision. I mean, we didn't have a vaccine for how long? So, so there is no urgency to taking a vaccination. Well, I, I, why is it that they have to be forced to do the research? Why can they not count upon the institutions and the leaders and the physicians within to do the ethical thing, to really honestly, do you understand? I mean, because- I other- understand, yeah. No, but, but the problem is, Last week, the Secretary of Defense issues an order. Three days later, the Commandant of Cadets issues an order. Today, cadets are being told, you have to, it's mandatory for you to take this vaccination. Where have the, they given these kids time to, to think about it, to research it? Well, exactly, but that's being done on purpose. I mean, well, he even says in his, uh, in his memo, you know, we got to get this done. You know, this has to happen on a short timeline. Well, and to show how they're not using science as a basis for the order is the fact that they said natural immunity is not equivalent to a vaccination. So in other words, they are ordering people who've had COVID, who have natural immunity, they are ordering them to get the vaccine too. And they're saying you can't disobey this order. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, Again, if you talk to the frontline doctors, I mean, call up Call up those doctors at the uh, the Mediterranean University in France who have who have literally treated successfully treated. At this point, it must be over fifteen thousand patients. Okay, and they have a database of information. You have, of course, Dr. Peter McCullough, who's all over the place blowing the whistle. There are a whole bunch of doctors, frontline doctors, treating patients who are saying this, and they're saying it's very dangerous to give the vaccine to somebody who has natural immunity. Okay. But, but, but we go back to the chain of command. The commandant of cadets works for the chief of staff of the air force works for the secretary of defense works for the president. Okay. And the president's the commander in chief. The, they are the ones not challenging the orders and pursuing the science. Um, Well, maybe they should be sued. Well, but you can't sue them. I mean, they're 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 basically in their roles and performing their duties. They're immunized from any kind of civil suit. They they have no personal liability or responsibility for those decisions. Well, they may have responsibility. Well, but you do you hear what you're saying? Yeah. Do you hear what you're saying? You're yeah. saying that our top leaders on something like this are above the law. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you want a short answer? The short answer is yes, they, they are above the law and they know that they can get away with it. Do you think Congress, you think Nancy Pelosi is going to call um, the secretary of defense into a hearing right now and say, why are you issuing this order? Do you, that's not going to happen. Pelosi's no. not going to do that. No, no. That's- oh, oh. 
No, I mean, because there has been an organized, I mean, even for civilians, there's a, there's a well-organized uh, machine forcing everybody to get vaccinated and slowly like the unvaccinated are being marginalized. They're being, they're being, uh, you can't travel, you can't go here, you can't do this, you can't do that. I mean, it's, it's kind of terrifying. And, you know, I've been thinking about this because I'm so glad I'm talking to you as a guy who's been in the military, because when I hear all the things that I've heard, and by this point, I'm just, I can't even explain to you how desperate I think this situation is with these doctors who are, now they're coming after these frontline doctors saying, you know, stop talking about the successful early treatment protocols. Stop talking about this. And they've and of course, they've been censoring on all the major social media platforms and so on. OK, so my question is, when these guys go to court. And decisions are being made, just like your judge in, in the anthrax case. How many times do you go to court and they say, OK, well, we want to hear what the what the defendant did, but we don't want to know why he did it, because, you know, even though in court, usually if there's a mitigating circumstance, there's a mitigating circumstance and that is always factored in, you know, and his mitigating circumstance happens to be based on the fact that this anthrax vaccine was experimental and hadn't been uh, tried on anything more than monkeys. Well, I mean, that's uh, if you want to talk about history repeating itself, as we started this conversation, I mean, Dr. Buck, he did everything you want someone to do. He, he looked at the science. He looked at the vaccine. He considered his principles. He, he said that as a doctor, I wrote it down. Medicine is founded on three principles, trust, science and patients' rights. What's different today? Has that changed? That hasn't changed, but he was convicted. And I'm telling you today, the military is going to go after the people who refuse the vaccine. Now, I'm hoping nobody gets court-martialed, but they can disenroll them from the academies. They can um, discharge them from the services. They can issue them letters of reprimand. But um, I mean, I'm, I am up for the fight. I was up for the fight for Dr. Buck. I'm up for the fight today. And if anything, as a defense counsel, I say that defense attorneys in the military are the we're the quality control of the military justice system. And it's our job to go to the, the chain of command and understand. I've deposed the secretary of the Air Force. I deposed Commandant of the Marine Corps. I, I deposed the chief of staff of the Army and Air Force. I deposed the former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I've gone after these guys and I've spoken truth to power. And sometimes I win and sometimes I lose. But I'm up for the fight. Well, what do you think? Is there anything that's different in this, at, in this situation that might give you a leg up that you didn't have before? I'm going to say no, but only because of this. Um, at the time of the anthrax, that was just focused on people being deployed and going into a war zone. Right. This is, this is impacting every facet of society. I mean, um, mandates are coming out now everywhere, businesses, uh, civilian colleges and universities. Uh, and, and so what we see is 
Um, we have a polarized society. It's, it was already polarized at the end of the Trump administration. Nobody will dispute that. And if anything, maybe it's becoming more polarized, if that's, if that's even possible. But I think the real problem that we face today is that everybody has an opinion on this, it seems like. And so um, there's a real fear factor here. And I believe big government, big industry, big pharmaceuticals, they're, they're using that fear factor against us. Well, they're generating the fear factor. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't. I can't argue with that. And now what's fascinating is these breakthrough cases, people who've been vaccinated. I mean, the military order seems to just want to ignore the breakthrough effect, but they also want to uh, ignore the therapeutics that are out there now so that, you know, getting COVID is not a big deal. I mean, you have prophylactic methods to deal with it, and then you have treatment methods to deal with it. And and, uh, the government's turning a blind eye to that. Now, why do you suppose that is? Well, uh, go I, ahead. I, you have uh, to say it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going back to the, uh, to the money factor and what President Eisenhower said is, you know, we need to be concerned about the military industrial, in, industrial complex. And now we have to be concerned about the uh, social media industry and how they want to silence people like you and me who, who want to speak the truth. Well, you know, again, you know, I was I was about to say something uh, before, and that is, that is that if if you go through the justice system, and the justice system is corrupt on this, okay, and refi- like to me that already I, I, I can almost predict that your experience is going to be similar to your experience 20 years ago. Right? Well, well, I think so. But um, sometimes I feel like Don Quixote, you know, I'm going to continue (laughs) packing windmills, regardless, because it's the right thing to do. Well, but I'm wondering if you can't invoke history by saying, you know, we had this, let's do this quick vaccine because we developed this anthrax, this deadly ant that we sent over to Saddam Hussein. And then we had to develop this because we wanted to go fight Hussein. And now here again, you have the government, you know, they developed through this gain of function, you know, they helped develop through the gain of function, this virus. And now everybody has to be vaccinated as a result of, so, is that n- not going to be, could that historical context not be of any use in your case? Well, Just I mean, asking. I, yeah, but ultimately in a courtroom, if, if any of this ends up in a courtroom, I mean, the military is really good at, if they think they're going to lose something in the courtroom, then they'll withdraw the charges and quietly reprimand somebody or discharge them so that a judge doesn't rule against them. I had that happen in a case at the Air Force Academy. Uh, last year where uh, we were about to have a big hearing, unlawful command influence. We were going to expose the government and the shenanigans they were involved in. And a week before the hearing, the superintendent of the Air Force Academy withdrew the charges and then disenrolled the cadets so that it wouldn't be heard in a court of law. I mean, that's how they operate. If they well, in, in a sense, one thing they did with, with John Buck is they did not 
slam him up against the wall in his court martial. And I think that's because they may have been worried that uh, if if they had gone too hard on him, that that would might have inspired a backlash in the ranks. Well, now, now I have to make a distinction here. The judge ruled against our legal defense, but we had members oh, against your legal defense, meaning right, meaning that that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Right, our legal defense. But the, the, the members were basically told this was a lawful order. And so they had no choice but to convict him. But their sentence was so light because they heard the rest of our story in our sentencing hearing. And so the members, I think, understood our arguments. There was just nothing they could do about it. They were instructed by the judge this was a lawful order. Well, he said, I refuse to obey it. So they had no choice but to convict him. But, but it wasn't a lawful order. No, but that's what the judge said. Now, here's another thing about the military justice system people don't know. You don't have a right to appeal. In other words, the punishment he received, he could not file an appeal with the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals because the Uniform Code of Military Justice does not give him the right of appeal. If he'd gotten a more serious punishment, he could have appealed. But because he got a light punishment, there was no appeal. So that's how they split the hair to protect themselves? That's one of the ways. No, so they have multiple ways to protect themselves. That's just one. Well, I just find it interesting that 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 was an unlawful order, right? I mean, well, I it was. Uh, but, you know, these issues are being fought across the country right now in civilian courts with civilian involving civilian institutions. And and, uh, and and judges are going to be ruling against them. And ultimately, a lot of these issues may well likely end up at the Supreme Court. But that's going to take a long time to work through that process. A lot of people will have been vaccinated by then. A lot well, of people. And a lot of people will have lost jobs, left universities who, who stood on their conscience and chose to walk away rather than fight. No, this is impacting lives in so many multiple ways. Well, what about the National Defense Authorization Act? Doesn't that say that you're supposed to, uh, if you're being, uh, I mean, it says here, what? There's a limitation to the Ferris Doctrine. If, uh, let me see, if there's personal injury or death as a result of the service of a member, uh, to to the service of a member of the uniformed services that was caused by the medical malpractice of defense department of, De of defense healthcare provider. In other words, if a medical person of, of the DOD hurts the, the you in VA, some way. Right. Right. That's because they have the VA benefits. The, the, the logic behind the Ferris doctrine is that if you suffer harm, such as medical malpractice, uh, you're permanently disabled or, or something to that effect. Uh, you will be taken care of by the VA system. Oh, whoopee. I mean, you know, it's that, that's that's the logic behind it is that you don't sue doc, military doctors. Uh, and that's part of it. There's more logic to it than that. I mean, um, but but doctors are effectively protected from malpractice if they are a military doctor on the one hand. And on the other hand, the VA disability compensates people for uh, disabilities and injuries suffered in war, 
suffered in malpractice. Where they, the military doesn't care how you suffer your disability or injury. We'll protect you through the VA system. That's the logic. And the Ferris Doctrine's been around. Well, well but there's a difference between uh, suffering an injury in war, which is the Ferris Doctrine, right? No, no the Ferris Doctrine applies in non-war uh, injuries as well. Really? Really. Oh, I thought that it didn't. I no, thought that. No, 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 no. no. That, that applies. Any military member um, who suffers uh, an injury or disability on active duty in the line of duty, they're covered by the VA, whether it's in war or not. All right. I'm just going to ask you a real direct question, you know, slightly. I mean, are these 800,000 plus people? basically screwed in terms of no choice. They're going to have to get vaccinated and whatever happens to them down the line, tough noogies. Oh, go to the VA. Yeah, go to the VA. <laughs> oh God, which is, you yeah. know, is that what it is? That's the fight we're in. I will, I'm, 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 I tell people when I, if I cut my wrist, I still bleed Air Force blue, but the fact remains because I serve in the Air Force, but the fact remains, um, it's up to people like us and all those across America who are challenging these mandates. Um, but there is, a, I think uh, there is a hue and cry to fight this fight. I'm willing to fight it. And like I said, sometimes I feel like uh, Don Quixote, but I'm going to. Well, press on. let me ask you something. Uh, do you do you think that you might attract enough people to have a class is there such a thing as filing a class uh, action suit against not, the government yeah not well not in the military they don't um, a class action suit is a civilian uh, litigation in civil court it's not is there no group group uh i mean if a bunch of people get together and say we don't want to take this they can't go in as a group and say hey to the in a in a military court well but that's that's effectively being done in the civilian courts right now if, if a civilian judge or appellate court or the Supreme Court says that this uh, vaccine is unreasonable, it's not science-based, is unconstitutional, then we can carry that over into a military court. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure. We, I cite federal law all the time in my trials and appeals. I cite the Supreme Court. I mean, military members... They have limited constitutional rights, but they do have some constitutional rights. I mean, it just seems. If we can get the Supreme Court or some federal court of criminal of appeals, a circuit court of appeals to rule that this mandate, these mandates that are being issued um, are unconstitutional, I can walk into a, a military court with that. And we really didn't have that in anthrax because because it was people only in the military who were who were facing these mandates. Yeah, but but then the problem becomes time not being your friend. I mean, they can't do this fast enough. And your your dance is a slow dance. Well, you dance. Darrell Royal was the coach for the University of Texas many years ago. And one of his famous sayings, and this shows how old I am, that I'm quoting Darrell Royal. He said, you dance with the one what brung you. So <laughs> and, uh, I think that applies to this situation. Uh, you just have to fight it with what you have and resources. Well, you have. Let me ask you something then. If you were head of the DOD, okay, if you were defense secretary, 
what would you do? What would you do about this whole COVID situation? What decisions would you make? And if if you could do anything to reform the legal system, the, the military legal system, what would you do? Well, that's a big question. Yes, it is. I was actually, I was on the Cox Commission on the 50th anniversary of oh, the East wow. Day. I was the token defense counsel that served on the Cox Commission to look at the UCMJ and make recommendations for changes to the UCMJ. You have to tell the audience what the UCMJ is. The Uniform Code of Military Justice. Right, okay. But So, I mean, I've been in that position of being able to make recommendations and and things of that sort. The, The problem I would face if I were the Secretary of Defense, though, is that there's a commander in chief who's uh, sitting on my shoulders. And so one of the problems from a political standpoint you have to deal with is, am I going to rip those four stars off my shoulder? Am I going to rip that title Secretary of Defense off my shoulder? And am I going to say, boss, this is wrong. I have told you why it's wrong. And if you apparently you don't like my recommendation, so goodbye. It takes that kind of character to bring about real changes. So as the defense secretary, your allegiance is not to the Constitution or the people of the United States. It's to the president. No, no, no. That's not what I said. No, I'm asking you. Oh, no, it's to the Constitution. That's without a doubt. Well, why do you why then do you have to take your uh, stripes off for uh, because you're going against the president? Because if you tell the president. Sir, we have to keep Bagram Air Base to protect U.S. citizens in Afghanistan. Uh, and, the, and the president says, no, I, I'm not going to give you more troops. And I said, we're going to be out of, by 31 August. That's the point where you say, I'm not going to issue that order, sir. I am. You OK, can, I see what you're saying. That's right. Right. And that's what happens, you know, in Germany, World War Two. I mean. There were those who tried to kill Hitler. Now, I'm not saying, you know, kill the president. Don't get me wrong. But there were those who refused and they yeah. paid the price when they refused. Well, de Gaulle, of course, he, you know, he they tried to kill him and he went across the uh, pond to England, to, you know, help get the resistance going. I mean, it's weird. Like, in the, I, I find I don't find much uh, opposition or to or many voices. I, I don't find I don't know of any voices except for yours. That's why I brought you on talking about this problem with uh, the COVID vaccines and with the uh, with the suppression of people's movements and, and so on. I mean, this is I, uh, what are we living in now? It's not a democracy. Well, it's, it is depressing. Well, no, but why aren't more people in the military saying, uh, because, you know, in the end, you can pass, you can, you can pass all kinds of laws. You can say, oh, this person should be arrested or that. But if law enforcement and ultimately the the military, even, I don't know, uh, they're either going to come against the people or they're going to be stand up with the people. You know, I, that reminds me of a war story I heard back during the Vietnam War. We were having B-52s uh, fly missions over North Vietnam. And uh, as these missions progressed over time, they were basically coming in the same line of attack. And we started losing B-52s over Hanoi and other 
targets. They were shooting them down. And um, a classmate of mine in law school told me that he had been one of those B-52 pilots. And he said it, there was a point where they stood up and they said, in effect, a mutiny. Uh, they said, sir, we're not, if that's the way we're going to fly these missions, we refuse to fly. And it took that kind of effort by the pilots flying the missions to stop that practice. But, but that's the kind of thing it takes. It takes people um, coming together of whatever persuasion in the military, outside the military and elsewhere, the people who were standing and protesting today at the Air Force Academy. I mean, I hate to tell them their protest won't do anything, but it takes enough people in the right places to take a stand and it can change. I gotta tell you something. I mean, and full disclosure, I'm the mother of a retired Marine Corps officer, but I'm sick and tired of these political leaders abusing our surveying men and women. I'm sick and tired of it. And when I see this order, that's, I'm sorry, I'm going to be perfectly frank. That is what comes to mind. But this is a, an 800,000 people situation we've got here. You know? Uh, what, what is so sad to me, having taught at the academy, talking to some West Point cadets and Air Force Academy cadets recently, the people of character who are willing to challenge this order are the very people you want spending their careers in defense of our nation. And so the fact is, we're, we're eliminating the people who are willing to think and to stand on principle. And we're going to keep the yes, the people who say yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and then and then obey these orders that should not be obeyed. That's perhaps the scariest thing out there. That to me is not the scariest thing out there because those people will find themselves and find everybody else on the outside and they will know, <clears throat> excuse me, better than the average bear how to bring pressure to bear. Because at some point, this giant castle of corruption has to be addressed. It has to be addressed. I mean, you're, and you call yourself Don Quixote, but to me, I prefer the, uh, you know, uh, I prefer calling you a drop in the bucket. And there are lots of drops falling in the bucket. And at some point, but I, I just feel like, um, you know the military mindset because you've been in there and you're a lawyer. Do you, how, how big a group of people do you think is in there thinking this is not right and something needs to be done? Uh, I think the group is too small, um, quite frankly. Um, I, I know, you know, uh, another thing I observed, this is just a matter of um, anecdotal observation. There are a lot of lieutenant colonels who retire. I retired as a lieutenant colonel who, who know how the sausage is made within the military. And rather than stay in and become more institutionalized, 
um, they move on to other careers in other fields. Um, and so what you end up with is our colonels and generals who pretty much are institutionalized at that point. And so you, the people that could be agents of change have moved on to other fields. Um, Can they not be agents of change from the outside? Well, but, but I mean, my dad retired as a lieutenant colonel and he became a, a pastor. He went to a seminary as a Presbyterian minister. And so his, his agent of change was to change people's souls and to, you know, that, that's the way he dealt with it. I mean, I just feel like, I just feel like if you come out because of that, because the, the, the screws are going to get ever tighter because these people, they may be serving in the military, but they have family members outside of the military. Okay. They have family members they have, and they will see, you know, the control of movement, the, the, you know, I mean, we're already surveilled to within an inch of our lives. So I, I guess I, I'm looking at you and I really think you, I actually think you're a beacon of hope. Honestly, I'm so thrilled that you're doing this. And I think that you are somewhat one of those tribes memory people because you saw the same scenario 20 years ago. So, you know, you know, this landscape very well. Well, well, I mean, I like to think I do, but, um, and I win, I want to be clear, the um, Don Quixote metaphor, I, I win 80% of my cases that I litigate. So I, but, but more often than not, when you're winning a case in court, you're winning it on the facts. Now I win a lot of cases on appeal. And there you're winning more on law than you're winning on facts. But um, so I win a lot of cases. Um, but but the fact remains that uh, it's a constant battle to to fight for what is right as Americans. I mean, I think we have to discover what it means to be an American anew in every generation. I think perhaps the most important thing we can do, I believe, as a parent, I have three children uh, and eight grandchildren is to educate them, to teach them. And I'm proud to say my, my daughters, uh, I mean, one daughter didn't take the vaccine and she just had COVID three, three weeks ago. Uh, another daughter says, uh, I'll pull my kids out of school and homeschool before they're gonna be vaccinated or even have a mask mandate. So what I have done at least is in my own family, I have tried to pass on these principles and things I believe and I think that's where we as citizens of this great country have to um, not only pass it on to our children and, and grandchildren, but to our neighbors and our friends. And in those uh, areas of community that we're involved in, uh, church and civic organizations and otherwise, we have to speak up. We can no longer be silent. And I think too many of us have been silent over time. Well, there's a huge press, a huge media press, constant pressure on everybody. I mean, if you watch TV, first of all, it's wall to wall pharmaceutical ads. And then on top of that, you know, stars saying, did you get vaccinated? Did you get vaccinated? You will drive along down the highway, you know, get your vaccine. You go to the pharmacy, you can get a, you know, you know, get your COVID vaccine. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. And and so, I mean, I'm <laughs> I think that it's going to 
as things get more difficult for people, they're, you know, they will, it will become a larger group will become more cohesive, you know? Well, it is, it is up to uh, people taking a stand. Like I said, I, at the end of the day, um, complaining is not enough posting whatever you want to post on social media. I don't do social media. I mean, I just don't have time for it. I have, you know, some, that seems to be my, my grandchildren are really into that. Kind well, of stuff. I was going to say that's their, that's, that's your generation. You're not in, you're, you're into face to face talking to people, having coffee. This, me too. You know, cause we're I'm, not, I'm not confident that our education system though, is um, teaching the principles that uh, will sustain this nation over time. I'm, I'm really worried about that. I'm confident yeah. in my own children and grandchildren that what they're learning, but where, I, where I'm able to monitor it and have input. But um, I feel like in, in parts of our country, um, these, these basic principles of um, the rights, human rights, the rights of man, our rights over our bodies, our rights to making decisions about our own medical care and treatment, I don't think those values are being taught the way they well, should be. Let me just ask you, you know, the military in this country and the Pentagon is obviously uh, the most, one of the most powerful institutions. I, I don't know. Is it the most powerful institution? It's certainly the best funded. You um, just to keep it depoliticized. I mean, that's, that's the real concern right now is, is, um, is it becoming politicized? And, and particularly as the military has, uh, has uh, reduced in size. I mean, you know, when we go look at how large the services were back in the Vietnam War and how small they are today, relative in particular to the size of the population, uh, it's becoming very insular. And, and, uh, and so it's not the same military that we had when we were drafting people in Vietnam who were of all kinds of uh, philosophies, ethnicities, and faiths. Well, if it's so much smaller now, why is the budget so much bigger? Uh, I guess that's the cost of technology. I don't know. <laughs> My wife's a cost analyst, uh, and, and I don't have to ask her that question. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was reading an article where it said billions of dollars worth of equipment and, you know, resources left behind in Afghanistan. I just thought well, to you, myself. But, yeah, but you have to look at it relative to the GDP, the cost of uh, defense relative to the GDP. It's, don't look at the dollar sign and how many zeros are behind it. You have to look at the percentages. And that's, that's the way I view it. Is, well, what's the percentage of money, uh, of, of military money relative to the GDP? Well, I would, I would attach that also uh, to the cost of going into Afghanistan and the cost of prosecuting the war. And then we leave these billions. Out. So if you put all that together um, for a failed situation, uh, who's going to be held accountable for that? Um, time will tell. I, I mean, I, I believe... Nobody! Well, uh, again, well, and, I, 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 I have to admit, I, I, I testified in Congress in one case, and, uh, and I learned very quickly that congressional hearings are more show than substance. And so I, I walked away from that experience realizing that 
there are different people with different agendas and you hold this hearing and then they, they support their agendas and, and move on. So even congressional hearings is not account, doesn't hold people accountable. Yeah. I call, I call those um, contain, congressional hearings. A lot of them are containment exercises. We've run out of time and I really thank you for coming on. And I thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's incredibly important.